Thank you, Andy, and uh, thank you also, David, for, uh, for reading. Thank you very much. It's a longish passage, and it's slightly out of context. Um, I'm, I'm, and I don't know about you, you're probably more familiar with the, the bit of Ephesians 2 at the beginning. But we're going to look at uh, Ephesians 2 and these verses. By all means, keep your Bibles uh, open. We're going to look at this, what Paul describes as a, a wall of hostility and how Christ uh, destroys it. Now, at home, Barbara and I have got the builders in, as if she didn't have enough on her plate. And we're watching. We've seen the foundations being laid, and we're now watching as the, the walls go up, the inner wall, the outer wall, etc. It's, it's, it's her new kitchen, and, and so we're getting quite excited uh, about it. Walls don't normally excite, uh, frankly. Um, because they're, they're often erected for, um, for less than happy reasons. They're often erected uh, to, to be a, a separation between uh, people. Do you recognize where this is? This is the Berlin Wall. And, uh, and even in my youth, I, I held out no hope that this would ever be uh, destroyed and come down. But with the fall of communism, uh, so also this uh, this wall, this much-hated symbol of oppression uh, came down, and it was destroyed. And for that reason, I've therefore entitled the, uh, the chapter, or the section that we're going to look at, uh, particularly in verse 14. That's the sort of text that I'm going to take. All good preachers apparently have a, a text that they base themselves uh, on, is uh, then verse 14, where it speaks of Jesus, who is himself our peace, it says, and he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So there we are, that's the title of my uh, sermon this morning, and I have to confess, uh, when I was, uh, well, uh, until only quite recently, it may be to do with the fact that I had a Bible which didn't have your helpful headings, because the heading in the NIV gives it away straight away. But the Bibles that I'm used to were just simple text, and I read it from, uh, from beginning to end. And I understood that this passage was referring to the barrier that exists between men and women coming to God, the barrier of sin. I don't know how many of you have sat through evangelistic sermons in your youth. Um, in over 50 years, I've sat through a fair old few. And, and you probably know uh, what I mean. Sin, so goes the sermon. Sin is a barrier. You recognize this image. Um, sin is a barrier. It's something that stops us getting from where we are to where God is. But because of the cross, you can see how this bridges the gulf, it bridges the gap, uh, this barrier has been dealt with. And uh, because of uh, Jesus' death on the cross, if we simply receive, you can see the key word, if we receive Jesus into our hearts, then we have access, open access to God because our sins will be forgiven and uh, we can live with God forever. This rings a bell, I imagine, with some of you. Well, it turns out that as far as this little section is concerned, I was wrong. Paul is actually not talking about the barrier uh, which separates us from God. Instead, he's talking about something rather different. I should say, in regard to this graphic, any resemblance to any person's living or dead is entirely coincidental. 
But the barrier that Paul is talking about then is, is the one between Christians. It's the one which can exist, a wall of hostility even, between one church member and another. It's as if, and Andy used the word rightly, it's as if some of us are are almost foreigners to each other, complete strangers, outsiders. There's something between us. And our artist here has visualized not so much a barrier, but a, a fissure, a crack, running through the floor and separating one grumpy set of Christians from another. Anyway, I want, therefore, to step back and to have another look, to correct my misunderstanding, at least, and see what Paul is saying here, because although he is addressing a a first-century church situation, the Ephesian church, it nonetheless has resonance for us in the 21st century. If you have your Bibles open, you'll see that in this chapter, Paul speaks then about this, this church in Ephesus, how there are two distinct groups. And he seems to give various titles to them. He starts by calling them the circumcision and the uncircumcision. But we might simply identify them as Christians who've come from a Jewish tradition, Jewish traditions, Jewish Christians, and those who have come from a Greek background, because Ephesus was in the Greek-speaking Greek empire now run by the Romans, but it's still part of the Greek empire. And so you have Jewish Christians on the one hand and Greek or Gentile. We'll use that word as well because that's probably how the Jews referred to these Greeks as Gentiles. You'll know a little something about that. And this dividing wall of hostility is between these groups. They are almost, as it were, foreigners to each other. A quick introduction. This um, This is Ephesus. You've done your geography, you may know um, Turkey, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor it used to be called, and Paul would have known uh, that this place, Ephesus, was going to be of key strategic importance when it came to spreading the gospel. You'll know that he did various missionary journeys on his third, and so he was getting into the swing of things, on his third missionary journey, uh, Paul decided to use Ephesus as the center, the headquarters almost, of his, uh, the spearhead of his missionary uh, preaching. And so he does his first thing. He's fairly well practiced now in his missionary activities. He goes first of all to the synagogue. Because he's a Jew, he then has an immediate affinity with the Jews in the synagogue. And he can speak to them as equals. And so he goes there, but his message, of course, is not the traditional Old Testament message. Instead, it's that of the Messiah having come in the person of Jesus Christ. It is important that these Jews acknowledge him. And he has apparently some success. There have been places, you'll read them in Acts, the story of the beginning of the church. There were places where he was thrown out straight away, but he stays there for three months. We assume he must have had at least some uh, decent reception, but it doesn't last. And uh, after those three months, uh, criticism becomes too much, and he takes his message away. And he goes to a local uh, public hall and holds debates with the non-Jews, the Greeks, the Gentiles, call them as you will. And we must assume that, presumably, he, he found some converts, and these converts then went on numerically growing, and he found somewhere where they could then meet regularly as a new community of Ephesian Christians. Some 
with the Greek background, some still with their Jewish roots evident. And probably because he spent two years ministering to the Gentiles and was only in the synagogue three months, then we would see probably um, a sort of um, imbalance, rather. Um, so I've, I've chosen this graphic, and that represents the imbalance. And it also in, um, illustrates the problem that Paul is describing, the wall. I want you to keep your uh, mind on this wall. There were two, then, quite distinct groups, okay? both proud of their contrasting heritages, and they were now being forced. They were being forced, encouraged, to come together as a, as a new unity, as a new community, with one faith, one baptism, one Lord. And probably in Paul's time as their pastor, there would have been uh, quite a degree of integration, the coming together of those two who would have never given each other the time of day. Instead, they would have learnt what it is to build up together the house of God. But if we read Paul's comments aright, it's always tricky with these uh, epistles to know exactly what the problem was that Paul was writing back to them. We have to guess. But if we read this aright, then it would seem that Paul, writing this letter a few years after he was in Ephesus, he is addressing their different, her- their different heritages and how that has led to a barrier between these two. These two groups, of course, would have come from different places. The Jews would have looked to their ancestor Moses, and before him, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. King David would have been a great hero. Uh, that's, by the way, you recognize the actor at the top? Charlton Heston, yes, playing the role of Moses. Um, and they would, consider their, they would consider themselves in many ways to be a f- foreigner in Ephesus because their roots, they were always looking back to, were Jerusalem, inside what we would perhaps call Palestine. They were Middle Easterners. That was their real homeland, the promised land. It wasn't just territory held dear by those whose nationality was, was Jewish, but it was holy land. Whereas the Greek Christians, they look back, do you recognize how well do you know your Greek civilization? Alexander the, the Great. Alexander the Great was the chap from Macedonia who conquered swathes of Europe, of the Middle East, of North Africa, and imposed on those regions... Greek culture, the Greek learning, the Greek language. It was a considerable taking over of those countries. The Romans perhaps now being in in command, yes, but nonetheless Greek was the, the common language and Greek was the culture that they were very proud of, these, uh, these Greeks, and they would have looked down their noses at those Jews from a small pootling little Middle Eastern country. They, the Greeks, were the ones who had a greater heritage. And their church life was going to reflect the different values. This is a synagogue, and you can see the women. They're separate. In fact, this idea of separation, segregation, is key to the Jews in their thinking, the values, uh, as they see life. They have to remain 
apart. They have to keep themselves separate from everything that would defile. And there was nothing that would defile more than a Gentile. So this was going to be interesting, bringing two of these communities together. For a start, the women, were they going to sit next to their husbands now that they were in the new church? Or were they going to find themselves up in the balcony just as they did in the synagogue? And were they going to sit next to a Gentile? Simply by going into a, well, I needn't go on. And what do you think the Greeks themselves would have thought if, if this was, uh, fellow Christians were withdrawing? They were, they were keeping themselves at arm's length. You can imagine, this has the potential for considerable tension. And the Jews were, were people of the book. We know it as the Old Testament, the Torah, they might have called it. And everything in there was for them, life and God. Everything about their whole existence was inside the Torah. But the Greeks, not having any, uh, culture, any cultural equivalent, no holy book, no single writing of Scripture, they preferred their tradition of philosophy, reasoning, they were great believers in education and how the mind can take us from ignorance to knowledge. They didn't need to look back into some scripture which was created several hundred miles away in, in a Middle Eastern country. And the Jews being insulted, you can imagine. You can imagine. The Greeks instead were strongly, or would have been strongly influenced by the religion of their forefathers. You'll have done at school, I hope, all about the Roman gods and the Greek gods, the pantheon of gods and goddesses who often were given temples. This is an artist's uh, imagining of the temple in Ephesus, Diana, or Artemis, as she was called by the Greeks. This was the great temple, and there was a flourishing trade. You can read it about, uh, about this in, in Acts 19, a flourishing trade in all the idols, the little figurines representing Artemis, and that was their worship. They, the idols would be everywhere, these statues. They would be everywhere. They would be in the public arena. They would be in the home. There would be household gods, a shrine. Now, Paul might well have said to the community, there will be no idols in the new community of Jesus. There will be no imagining that our God can be confined to a block of wood, of stone, of metal. But when he was gone, that baggage that was in there, in the back of their minds, these Greeks, it would surely have, well, would it be so bad if I were to have a statue of Jesus? A statue or two of the, I don't know, the Holy Family. And what would the Jewish Christians be thinking? Because their heritage was strictly against it. They might well have taken uh, offense. And then questions of lifestyle, how uh, we live our lives. The, the fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And the Jews knew this one very well, but what was the Sabbath? When Paul was there, probably with them, he would have gone along with what seems to be current practice at the time. And that was that the churches being founded 
preferred to meet on a Sunday celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. But the baggage that the Jewish Christians brought with them was under the fourth commandment. It's not the first day of the week, it's the seventh day of the week. And so the potential for splitting this church is, is considerable. What do you do with your money as well? The Jews were used to tithing one-tenth of their income. But tithing isn't in the New Testament. And these new writings about the stories of Jesus, the Gospels, we know of them, they, they were just coming into the church. The manuscripts were coming and they were being shared eagerly by the new converts. And there was nothing in there about tithing. Do we? Should we give more than a tenth? Should we give less? It was a powerful thing, money, and we know what it is. If you go to a, uh, an association and you don't like the way that the association is being run, what do you do? You withdraw your subscriptions. You protest in that way. It's a very powerful way money can be used in that way. What would be happening in the church once Paul had left them? These lifestyle choices were being clearly a, a source of potential division. And then there's food. Something more important to our daily life than food. And the Jews, well, they were used to eating kosher food. And you imagine it then. If they were invited by the fellow Christians that they'd, they'd steeled themselves and they were sitting next to them in church and they were shaking their hand and they were uh, making every effort to be united in the faith... And one of them, these Greek Christians, invites them to a meal. Would they go? Should they go? What would they be worried about? Well, of course, they'd be worried that they would be eating food that had been forbidden for 2,000 years. Can you see how these issues have the potential to really pull a church apart? More and more bricks being added to the uh, wall of hostility. And maybe the, the Greek Christian, a Greek Christian has said, look, I've taken time to have a look at the Old Testament that, that, that you Jews so venerate, and Paul quoted from it in fairness. And I have found in there, there are a, a fair collection of quite strange instructions and laws. What's this business about wearing clothes that don't mix two different types of material? Should I, should I be doing this? What rules still apply? Paul said to us that we no longer have to sacrifice animals to God. So if that part of the Old Testament doesn't apply, what, what, what about this strange rule? They might well have come close to falling out. We could go on, and I'm not going to, but you can imagine they might have different views about Jesus. They might well have problems of communication because one spoke Greek and the other would have spoken the language that Jesus spoke when he was on earth, Aramaic. His second language would have been Greek, but he would have spoken Aramaic, and these Jewish Christians would have been the same. The potential for miscommunication, we know how much that uh, occurs, would have been considerable. It shouldn't get hostile when two groups come together, but I hope you can see there is an awful lot of baggage that these two groups of Christians would have come into fellowship one with another, bearing on their shoulders. Would they forget about it? Would they abandon it? 
Probably not. This is the church where I came to Christ. This is the church where I was baptized. And so this is my baggage. This is where I come from. Let me tell you about it. When I think about it again, it's almost like a different world. Every Sunday, we attended three services. You're a lazy lot, you know. (laughs) We strongly disapproved of one-man ministry. Perhaps it's good that Richard is on holiday. We had communion every Sunday, because that's what it says in the Bible. Let me tell you, people. In the morning, we would sing. We wouldn't have any music. We would sing unaccompanied. Life was easy then. We used the old King James Version. As you know, full of thee, thou, and thy. So our prayers were full of thee, thy, and thou. And the songs we sang, the hymns, were full of thee, thy, and thou. And um, dare I mention the women? They had to wear hats. They had not to wear trousers, not to wear lipstick, these painted Jezebels, and they were to remain completely silent in any meetings when a man was present. That's my baggage. What's yours? What's yours? And becoming a Baptist, I wonder if I have abandoned. Do you think I have? Abandoned, completely got rid of. How do you think I have accommodated the change? I would hope I have managed to come together, to work together, to fit in as best I can with you and the Baptist traditions. Now, don't get me, don't get me wrong. There are times and there are circumstances when we have to step back, when we have to object, when we have to say, this is not on. There is no possibility of us ever seeing eye to eye on this. We're right to look in horror at those churches where there are uh, victims of historic abuse. We're right to recall from, recoil from any behavior which is clearly sinful. We're right to have nothing to do with those who insist on following heretical teachings. Je- Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you they're Christians. They're not. They're not. And Paul is not addressing that. That's not the baggage that he's talking about. Instead, the rift that he's dealing with is one between people he knew to be converts. He knew that they were Christians. Their faith was genuine. But they were just being held back from full fellowship by the baggage, their their upbringing, etc. I wonder how you would have advised the situation. I wonder what words of wisdom you would have brought. I wonder if you have the golden bullet that that solves this particular problem. Now, these verses are not a manual for, uh, what do they call it, conflict resolution. It's not. You'll look elsewhere for those. But they do give us a few clues, three clues, I think. Um, As I was putting them together, it got a little bit childish, and I could see an ABC. So 
forgive me, it's the ABC of conflict resolution. It might help you remember, I don't know. The first thing is to avoid certain things. You, when we, you, you think of, the, of, of our context, 21st century and with the internet and the, con, the communications that people do, social media, if you have the internet at home, you'll know exactly what I mean. There are ways that people think we can resolve this conflict, we can sort this out, we can bring people together, we can bring peace. And they get on the, into these keyboard warriors. I want you to think through. If I mention the words Phil and Holly, um, some of you may be aware of culturally. what. So you open the internet and you will find all manner. And some people choose to lob in words of wisdom. I always say, and Christians are quite good at just quoting, well, let us remember the words of Christ. Love one another as I have loved you. And good though that is, that sort of sermonizing, in my experience, rarely works. And Paul doesn't do it. You'll, you'll be reading and scanning. He doesn't do any of that. He could. He could have done that. It might have been better if... And that's the hypothesis. Can you hear any of you hear yourself saying this? About things, situations that you've had? It might... Yeah, it's a hypothesis. And history is there. We are where we are. Paul doesn't do it. And then there's the agreeing, the taking with... I agree with... And I disagree with... Taking sides. Paul doesn't take sides. Don't take sides. They were wrong. And he was right. And Paul doesn't do that. That criticism does not come from him. And this word shocked, I've seen it expressed about me. I was shocked to hear that a Keep emotion out. Paul does not get het up about these things. Keep emotion out of your dealings. If you want to resolve conflict, this is one of the worst things to do. And what they need to do now is this. You're the judge and the jury. You're the one that thinks you know the best way forward for them. You don't. And Paul doesn't either. So let us learn, if we do have the keyboard and we have temptation to become the keyboard warrior, hold back. If we have a phone where we might gossip and uh, say our piece to someone who might agree with us, hold back. Indeed, if we have a tongue in our head, what is it that James says in his epistle? Put a bridle, that's his image, put a bridle on your tongue. Hold it back, lest it should be in control of you and you say things you shouldn't unhelpful commentaries Paul doesn't at all join in doing. Instead, he tries to give them a picture of the way things are. They, they, yes, yes, there are certain things that are true, some things that the Jews are saying. True, you're going to have to accept this. But there is a bigger picture, a bigger picture, a wider set of realities which you need to take on board things indeed in their situation, things have moved on. Don't dwell in the past. Look to the future. Yes, the Jews are right as they look down their noses at you that you are the uncircumcised. But just remember, says Paul, this is something that is done by human hands. This isn't something which has any religious significance now. Yes, the, Jew, the Jews are right to point out that you were without hope in the world. 
that you had no expectation of a coming Messiah. Here's the good news, and you Jews need to listen to this, that both of you are now in this one Messiah. You're not just waiting for him. He's arrived, and he is your hope. Yes, you Greeks, you were outsiders, you were foreigners to the laws uh, that God had, but Christ has put the Jewish Old Testament law aside. It says so. There are certain aspects that we may well wish to think continue, but there are things in the Old Testament, Paul says, which have been set aside. The Greeks were were, um, great ones for their civilization. They invented democracy, you'll remember. They thought no greater privilege than belonging to a city. A city, they were Athenians, for example, Spartans. Great pride in their civic status, but they had, this was the sneering look from the Jews, they had no no citizenship with God. We, the Jews, have a citizenship in the Holy Land. That's good, isn't it? You're no, and Paul acknowledges that this is an issue. But you're now fellow citizens, fellow citizens in the new kingdom. You're reading with me. You can see what I'm referring to. And God had promised so many good things to the Jewish people. And they looked down and said, he didn't promise them to you. You're the outsiders. You're the foreigners. You may be on home territory here in Ephesus in the Greek empire, but you're the foreigners here. We are the ones who belong. And he draws that out and says, no, you're all in a new togetherness, a new family, the family of God. And he says, ABC, you're going to have to fix your eyes on somewhere else. You're going to have to contemplate, concentrate on something else. If ever you're going to get this baggage sorted out, ever going to get this conflict resolved, ever bring down the wall that is between you, you bickering parties are going to have to look elsewhere. Now, the Greeks knew all about peace and how to get it. Number one, you fought. You achieved military supremacy, and then you sat down with the losing side, and you discussed terms. You signed, you made your agreement, and that was your peace. That was how the Greeks went about getting their peace. War first, peace second. A third party probably would come and broker a non-aggression pact or broker a peace deal of sorts. Both sides would sign and the job was done. But Paul says, there's nobody going to come in here and sort you out. And even Christ himself, you look at the phrase in that verse 14 that is my text, he doesn't say that Christ is going to come and he's going to bring an agreement, he's going to broker a deal, he's going to offer peace. It's there very clearly. Paul says, he is our peace. You just think that's what he's saying. Contemplate this particular reality. Jesus doesn't resolve conflict by arranging peace or offering it. He is our peace. He is the person 
In him, he is that person who resolves the tension, the conflict. And if we spend our time contemplating the differences, keeping our eyes fixed on those different things that we do all the baggage, we'll never find peace. But if instead we put the blinkers on and look at the one who is peace, then we shall have a hope. This is a way forward. And it's the same when God looks at us. If God were to have focused on my baggage, on your baggage, on the things that you used to do, the places where you used to come from, if he did that, where would we be? The joy of the gospel that I heard those 50 and more years ago was that if I have trusted in Jesus as my Savior, God no longer sees me as a sinner. He no longer sees my sin. Wonder of wonders, he sees Jesus first. And he sees me covered in Jesus, clothed in Jesus' righteousness. We sang about this many times. Nandy, thank you for choosing those songs. Isaiah puts it rather nicely, doesn't it? He's clothed me with garments of salvation, arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. Clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless, I stand before the throne. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that I would commend to you. When God looks upon us, he sees not our sin. When he looks at me, he sees Jesus. And we need to do the same. It may not be the magic solution, as I've said, but Paul points us in this direction. When conflicts arise, we need to see in our brother and in our sister not the baggage, not where they are from, not what they would think that they are holding dear. But first, you need to see Jesus in them because you will be seeing them aright. You'll be seeing them in the way God is seeing them. Not their frailties, their rough edges, their shortcomings, and, and, and no, not even their sin. It's precisely by seeing Christ in each of us that our differences will be, they won't be solved, but they'll be put in perspective. And if we want, if we want the peace of God to prevail in our relationships and in our church, then we must first of all see Christ in each of us. Jesus has done all he possibly could to destroy whatever barriers or dividing walls of hostility existed between us and God. And he's done everything, therefore, in the same, by the same token, he's done everything to pull down the barriers that exist between us. So may we do all we possibly can to tear down those walls which would divide us, seek the peace which living in Christ can bring. And may we endeavor to build ourselves up 
and to build Taunton Baptist Church up. To be in the words of verse 22, final line, a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit.